Well, we've got a lot to cover tonight, um, and uh, I'm not going to be doing uh, most of the teaching. The Holy Spirit will uh, through two lives, um, and he's going to put the illustration on his living word. So you'll get a chance to see that tonight. But we're going to take a look at uh, one of the most profound uh, transformations of a human being probably in the history of the world. Uh, you're here tonight, and you have your Bibles open. Uh, you reside in the United States of America, which has a rich heritage of Judeo-Christian foundation. Uh, this nation was founded originally for the um, furtherance of the gospel. Uh, you look at our founding fathers and, and all that has transpired, and that goes all the way back. Um, it, we follow it to, you know, you can go into um, the British Empire, uh, Scotland, Covenanters. You can go further uh, with the Reformation and go further into uh, the the church being established uh, in the early centuries, uh, and and then it goes all the way back. The first conversion in uh, the Western world was Lydia on the shores of what would be uh, the edges of of Europe, and then you go further, and uh, those all those conversions all began with one single conversion. Uh, what we have as far as church discipline, uh, what we have in relation to what we call the pastoral epistles, how churches operate, uh, the church that we know today, all a result of the dictation of Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts. But more importantly, the pastoral epistles and everything we have that orchestrates how a church operates was established by one man. His name was Paul. Paul wasn't always Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. And we're going to see... Thanks, John. We're going to see, yeah, you can just put it down. We're going to see um, his conversion in Acts chapter 9 tonight. So you can turn to Acts chapter 9. But uh, before I begin, begin reading, um, I wanted to just stop for a moment and pray. Um, you know, I, I got a, my wife got a phone call, and uh, it was in the morning, and I was doing something, getting ready to go somewhere. And my wife started crying, and I, I was burdened for her. And, and she gets off the phone. She says, you know, I've never heard Daniel cry like that. I, you know, and Daniel's not a crying kind of kid. He, you know, he'll get a little choked up now and then, but not sobbing. Um, he, had a, he had a locker at Newberry Park High School, and the guy next to him in the locker, his name was Daniel Morales. Uh, a member of his football team, uh, both juniors, Daniel and, and Daniel were both juniors. Uh, Daniel Morales had transferred from Camarillo. Uh, both were on the team. Both played similar positions. Um, they were friends. And uh, Daniel Morales was stabbed in Camarillo and, and died of his injuries. Um, and, and, you know, this is just devastating to both Camarillo and also Newberry Park. And so I want to say a prayer for the family. And all these kids are just rocked over at Newberry Park High School. So let's pray. Lord, this is a fallen world. You never intended it to be like this. And all week I've just been thinking about that family and the the idea of having a locker right next to somebody and a chance to share the gospel, which I know Daniel continued to minister to that young man. And, and yet, Lord, I pray countless others did as well. And, um, and now, Lord, with this tragedy, I, I pray that it would put eternity in the hearts of all the kids, that you would work it together for good, as you say in Romans eight twenty eight. And Lord, we pray that through this there would be revival, not only at Newberry Park, but throughout the campuses in the Conejo. We pray, God, that you would bring revival, that you, your mercy would prevail, your grace would be abundant, there'd be great grace upon our valley. And so, Lord, we ask that you would begin with the youth, and I pray that there'd just be a burden. Lord, when you converted Saul, um, and he became Paul, his burden for the lost was unlike anything we've ever seen, because he had come from such misery, and then to witness such grace, 
Lord, I pray that that would be instilled in the heart of our young people as well as the adults. And so, Lord, we pray for revival. And I, I pray for the family comfort. And, Lord, for the Visos who lost, um, Janelle lost her mom. And, Lord, I just think of all the trials going on and the struggles in families. We just pray grace upon this community. Thank you for tonight. Bless the study of your word. Holy Spirit, be glorified as you lift up the name of Christ that all men would be drawn unto him. I pray that you'd move mightily through uh, Joe and through David. And we ask your blessing on the study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read through it. Um, The word speaks for itself. This is the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. Um, I'll read a couple of other passages from Acts 22 and 26, and I think Philippians 1 has an account. The Apostle Paul gave his conversion story, which is testimony. And by the way, a testimony, listen, we covered this already. A testimony is how your life was like before you met the Lord, how you met the Lord, and how your life has changed since having met the Lord. And you should have uh, an elevator testimony that you can get out in 30 seconds. You should have a five-minute testimony. You should have a testimony you can give in front of a congregation. Then go into greater detail. And tonight you'll see that one from two folks. Saul gives his testimony continually through his writings. And this is one account in Acts chapter 9, actually the first account. Then Saul, still breathing threats, this is verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed, and he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Question mark. I wonder how he said that. Who are you, Lord? Or who are you, Lord? You know, don't know. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, King James says pricks. Uh, The word is a long stick that's used to herd animals. And they'd try to herd them in and they'd kick against it to, you know, leave me alone. I want to go where I'm going. And it's it's a a rule that keeps folks in line. And um, he's kicking against the Lord. Uh, So he trembled, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? That is a great response to when you meet the Lord. What do you want me to do? Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was uh, three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, not the one who died of a heart attack. He, this is a new one. There, anyone in here named Joe? Raise your hand. Or uh, anyone in here named Bill? Okay. Anyone named Bob or Rob? So there's more than just one of us. Okay, good. There's more Ananiases. Just that, that's my point. Obviously, it took too long to establish. <laughs> Um, he said, there's a man named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. Same response Saul had that Ananias had. <laughs> Ananias' job is a little tougher. Watch this. The Lord said to him, arise and go to, the house, uh, go to the street called Straight. And by the way, it still exists in Damascus, the, the, road, uh, the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. That'd be like saying, go and find a man named Ted Bundy. Uh, This is is the fear that it would instill in any Christian. 
Um, think of the most horrendous name you can comprehend. And that's, that's the fear that would, would come into the heart of Ananias at the utterance of Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And then in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, doesn't it say all authority has been granted to me under heaven? Yes? So who has the authority, the chief priest or Jesus Christ? You can imagine the Lord going, Ananias, really? Uh, the, the, the chief priests have given him authority? I'm, I'm speaking to you. Uh, this is God, by the way. And uh, so, have you ever had a, a word from the Lord that just seemed odd? This is one of those. The Lord said to him, go for he's, chosen, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. For I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And so when he received food, he was strengthened, and Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now we go to chapter 22. I'll read it. Paul speaking, Luke recording. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. And by the way, you know who else was from, or who was preaching in Cilicia in the synagogues? Stephen. So we're going to see a connection between Saul and Stephen. Uh, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to death. And by the way, the term the way is a derogatory term given to Christians. He says, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also high priests bear me witness, and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there in Jerusalem to be punished. And then he says, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone about me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Three more verses. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. And so I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And then the passage goes on further, or the testimonies go on further in chapter 26, verse 12. While thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground. I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick at the goads. And so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose. And then he tells him his ministry. He says, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you, will yet reveal to you. 
I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified in me. One final uh, account is found in Philippians. Uh, Chapter three, verse one, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evildoers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision, he's speaking to Jews, he says, who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus, have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted for loss. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may obtain the resurrection from the dead, almost finished. Not that I've already obtained, listen to this, pay attention, or am already perfected, but I pressed, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, and you gotta pay attention to this, everybody. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, and I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So three statements about Paul's life, or four statements, and much we can glean from who he is. First, he's Saul of Tarsus. So we know that he was a Jew of Jews. We know that he was circumcised on the eighth day. We know his parents were devout. Tarsus was the second most learned city next to Athens in the entire known world. Tarsus was a, an area of education. And, um, and his parents, to be educated under Gamaliel, meant that he had to be shipped from Tarsus on his own at the age of 13 to be educated from the age of 13 to 18. It was a grueling school. It was actually, it would go to the age of 21. It was a grueling school. Um, it would take eight years to go through this formal education. He would receive the equivalent of a doctorate. He would speak the Hebrew language fluently. He would understand Greek. Paul understood Greek. His writings proved that he understood Greek. In addition, uh, he would always comment on, on Greek games and, and, and Greek activities, athletic activities. He was moved by that. He understood the Roman Empire. He was a Roman citizen. He was a man acquainted with all of it, but he was heavily and highly educated in the Hebrew culture, in the Jewish culture. What, because he was a Pharisee, that means that he was also of the Sanhedrin, which meant he had to have been married. Now, we know him to be single in his, in his ministry, but the likelihood is, according to, I think, 1 Corinthians 7, his wife abandonment, abandoned him. And we know that, that, that there's grounds for divorce, what they call abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse. And what Paul was saying is, if, is if they choose to leave, let them go. Uh, and the other grounds for divorce would be uh, adultery. This is things that Paul would write. And so, so we see that, that Paul was a Pharisee. We see that he was part of the Sanhedrin. We know that he had to have been married. We know that he was educated under Gamaliel. Uh, history points out, uh, Josephus wrote this. He pointed out uh, that Gamaliel stated in regards to the, the apostle or to Saul, his disciple, he said, books couldn't contain Saul. He was probably one of the most learned students that had ever come through those courses. 
he, was, he was headed for high marks. He was going to be the pinnacle. Uh, he was going to be the high priest, more than likely. He was on a, a trajectory to great things within the Jewish world. And as we saw in Philippians chapter 3, he counted all of the things that he had lost uh, as gain because he counted all that stuff rubbish. He lost everything the world held dear. And what he got in exchange for losing the highest appointed position politically in the nation of Israel, what he, what he lost politically, what he lost in exchange, what he gained was beatings, torture, persecution, misery, heartache. He lost his wife. I don't know if he had kids. He lost everything. And, and here this man is, is uh, so devout to this calling instilled in him from the age of 13, even earlier than that through his parents, but just grinded into his mind. So zealous for, for, the, for what he had learned in, in his upbringing in the Hebrew culture that we can see that he was assigned and given letters by the highest authorities um, in, in, in the Hebrew government to go and not just arrest Christians, people of the way, but he murdered them. He killed them. He consented to their murder. We saw in Acts chapter 7, he held the cloak. Uh, he held the cloaks for all those that stoned Stephen. He wanted Stephen dead. He'd actually shown up to, to contend with Stephen, who was speaking in the synagogues of, of, of Paul's territory. And Paul went to go contend with, uh, with Stephen and say, look, you're, you're some upstart. I'm the most educated guy in all of Israel. I'll contend with you. And by this time, he's probably in his early 30s, and, and, and Stephen, being probably a young man as well, gives what we have as the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It was, it was Stephen's last sermon. And at the conclusion of his sermon, as he's just laying it out, and he points out Jesus is the Messiah, and I told you all to read that, and I've done studies on it already, it concludes in verse 54 of chapter 7. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which is kind of cool. Jesus stood up for his entrance. That's kind of neat. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It says his face was shining like an angel. So Paul is witnessing this light that he's going to see on the road to Damascus. And by the way, Paul was on the road to Damascus at what time? Do you remember? in our reading? I'm sorry? Noon, midday. Have you ever been to the Middle East in the midday? It's close to the equator. The sun is brighter than anything you can possibly imagine. It's blinding. What kind of a light would outshine the brightness of the sun in any other place in the world? And, and that had to be something that was just stunning. It, it, that light, and I don't know, but have you ever had a light go on and it just kind of throws you back? Imagine noonday, you're already just squinting, and it hits you and it puts you to the ground. This is, this is what Paul's witnessing. Well, he's also seen this light shining on Stephen's face as he's concluding his sermon, and he says, look, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord. So all of them just started to descend on Stephen to kill him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They had an outer cloak, long sleeves. This is the typical dress of the day. To throw it, you would, you'd get a lot of you know, uh, resistance with the long sleeves, so you couldn't get a real throw on it. So you'd want to take off your outer coat. So if I was going to throw 
uh, uh, you know, the, the baseball at an opening game, I'd take off my, my blazer and I'd, I'd throw the ball. Probably roll up my sleeve and throw it. So they're taking off their outer cloaks to get a real good handle on it. And, and the stones weren't these little rocks. They were big, massive things that would crush the skull, break bones. And, and they're, they've run him out of the city and they begin to stone him. They've probably tied him to a post, so his hands are behind the post, his head is tied, neck's tied, and they're just taking uh, crack shots at him. Well, to do this, they, they have a, a, a coat check guy, and that's, that's Saul. So obviously, they've got their possessions. This is a man trustworthy. They're laying these at his feet. Saul's keeping an account of him. He is a man of authority. They know he can be trusted. They find this guy, and Paul's basically, he's almost like uh, in Rocky, he's the Burgess Meredith going, go get him, Rocky, and he's, he's just, you know, rubbing their shoulders and telling them to go hit him, and, and Saul is, bre- they're breathing murderous threats, they're coming after him, and they, they witness, they lay down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stone Stephen, and he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now hear that, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. Those words would echo in Saul's mind and heart. He would recount this. He probably, you know, Stephen had this sermon memorized. He went through the entire history of the Jewish people. Saul, having been educated for eight years in the most intense academy possible, knew the entire history that that Stephen had, had recited. Saul knew this sermon. Saul heard the statements at the end, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then at that moment, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. That probably baffled everybody there. He had every right to be angry with them and bitter with them. And he said, Lord, don't charge this sin against them. And as he said this, he fell asleep. I love that. I want to reemphasize, Christians don't die. Janelle's mom didn't die. She fell asleep. Christians don't die. We fall asleep, and then we awaken in the image of Christ. And, and you think about this. It burned in the heart. This, this picture of what had just occurred burned it in the heart of what would be the greatest intellect of their time. It was the longest sermon in the book of Acts and it burned into the soul of Saul. He got every single word of it. So now he's got these orders to go and kill Christians. And he's the kind of guy that, as he declared in his own writings that we've gone through and I read those quickly and you can go back and, and cover them yourself. I wanna tell you what kind of a guy this is. This man's a murderer. We talk about what happens in ISIS, the beheading of Christians. Saul did this. I don't know if it was beheading, but he he murdered. How he did it, maybe put the knife to the throat of the wife and told the husband to renounce Christ or die. He, He widowed wives. He orphaned children. What Saul did was awful. And and. We elevate him. He's, he's renowned. Our church is established on his writings. This man was the most heinous, awful murderer you could possibly imagine. And, and his name would instill fear. And, and you know why he had to go to Damascus? Because they had killed all the Christians in Jerusalem. And as I said earlier, persecution is to the church what wind is to a seed. So when they stomped on all the Christians in Jerusalem, the, the remaining folks that didn't get the boot put on their back just scattered. And they went to the outer edges of the Roman Empire. And they were in Damascus. And here they are in Damascus, and Paul just says, let me hunt them down in every nook and cranny in the Roman Empire. I'm a citizen. Give me papers. Give me authority. Let me kill them. Let me bring them back. Let me bring them in chains. Let's end this, and let's end it now. 
Now, there had been other uprisings. There had been other attempts to try to hijack Judaism. There were different sects of Judaism. Why was it that, that the Christians had to be persecuted? Because there was 15,000 within a matter of, of a week. Not only were they adding to their numbers daily, they were multiplying, not only multiplying, but greatly multiplying. It was out of control. Not only were people coming to the Lord, but, but the priests were converting to Christianity and they were coming to Christ. It was destroying Judaism as we know it. Everyone was realizing the Messiah had come. Saul and, and, and the remaining Jews could not, could not embrace the idea that a Savior, a Messiah, would bleed and die on a tree. Even though you look at you know, Isaiah 53, he, he, that, they saw the Messiah coming and bringing peace, and peace would be a sword and bringing Rome uh, to their knees. That's how they envisioned it. Now, be careful when, when you try to rewrite the story of what God wants to accomplish because you don't like the way he operates. God made it clear that he would be a suffering Messiah. God made it clear that, that, that there'd be nothing in his visage that we would be drawn to. You know, we, we depict Christ as a savior with, you know, Favio hair and piercing blue eyes and a halo over his head so that when the Romans came to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, all they had to do was go, that's the guy with a halo. Go get him. Piercing blue eyes. The Bible says there was nothing in his appearance that we'd be attracted to him. He's the kind of guy you'd look into a crowd and you couldn't pick him out. We like to depict him the way we think of, of you know, beauty. He, he wasn't. And, and his, his visage, they had marred him and beaten him so much, they'd pulled his beard out of his face. What they did to him beyond that was even worse. But he was a regular guy. He's probably very strong because he was a carpenter's son. We did, you know... I've heard Pastor Mark Leslie talk about tattoos, which we see in the book of Revelation. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not going there. I, I would, and I'm not dismissing what he's saying because it's kind of cool and appeals to young folks. I'm not going to go get a tattoo. I, I'll tell you one reason not to get a tattoo. Your tastes change. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, so so this, is, this is Jesus, and, and uh, this isn't the, the, the Messiah that, that Saul was looking for. And so he was committed to whatever idea he thought the Messiah was supposed to be, and he was going to persecute. And now he's witnessing the testimony that has been seared into his soul of Stephen, declaring that, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Don't count this sin against them. He heard the entire sermon and recounted why Jesus is the Messiah, how he was rejected by all of you. He gave an outlying case that, that Paul or Saul being uh, of an attorney's mind, having what would be the equivalent of multiple doctorates, speaking multiple languages, highly educated, would, would hear that and say, you know, he's, he's done a pretty good job for an unlearned knucklehead. But what was more impressive than his knowledge was his devotion. How can the people that are stoning you and beating you, how can you forgive them? That's what baffles the world. And, and let me just share this with you. One, one idea for those of you who have been deeply hurt or scarred, and you just can't let it go. Let me just tell you this. When the sun was shining so bright and it knocked Paul down at midday, at noonday, Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? What did he say? Why are you persecuting me? We, we want to take it personally that we're losing our religious liberties. 
We want to take it personally that our nation is, is turning from its, its Judeo foundation. We want to take it personally. We want to look at them as the enemy and we're the victims. And it's personal. They're not persecuting us. They're persecuting the Lord. What are we? Well, you're going to see with Saul, as you saw with Stephen, we're stepping stones for them to get to Christ. We're going to love them even when they kill us. That's going to be the greatest testimony. Not that you're right, not that your theories are right, not that your scriptures are right. You can contend in the marketplace of ideas, which is what we're supposed to do, but you're ultimately going to move somebody by your ability to love them. Greater love has no man than this, and to what? Lay down his life for a friend. Stephen seared the conscience of Saul when he just said, I love these folks. Lord, don't hold it against them. It's you they're upset against, and I'm just the, the, the vessel, and you're ready to take me home, and I'm not dying. I'm just going to go to sleep and, and bring that big Valium or the sleeping pill in that guy's right hand. That's going to be a tough one to swallow, but bring it on. Boom, boom, boom. The hindrance of the gospel is, is bitterness. The, the, the greatest disease in the body of Christ is, is, is unforgiveness in interpersonal relationships. You'll know them by their love for one another. And yet we can't even forgive one another, let alone love our enemies and do good to those who spitefully use us. They make us angry. They upset us. And yet, what would, what, would Saul, well, what would Paul do after his conversion? He would go into the den of iniquity. He would go into the heart of misery. He'd be in Ephesus. He'd be in Philippi. When we toured Ephesus, and, and you hear the story of the thousand temple prostitutes uh, coming down into the city every night to ply their trade with all of the, uh, you know, the, the sailors that would come in on, in the port. And, and every woman in the city who worshipped at the temple of Aphrodite, every woman in the city, whether it be the, a daughter of a certain age or a, a mother, was required to serve as a prostitute in the temple. Every family had a sexual dysfunction. And, and, and Paul's walking through these cities. His wife has abandoned him. He's walking through these cities, and every woman's coming up to him, plying their trade. He's in the thick of it. He's not looking, going, you brazen hussy, put some clothes on, what's wrong with you? He's, he, when he, he, he speaks when he has the opportunity to speak. He's bold when he's told to be bold. He's silent when he's told to be silent. He, he's, he's, not, he, he's put into prison. He doesn't, he's not angry at the guards. He begins to minister to the guards. The worst place that anyone could be would have to be on watch with, with Paul. He would be connected to two Roman guards, and, and, and the prisoners would be the guards, not Paul. And he'd witness to both of them. He would write, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. And when he was writing that in Galatians, he was in prison. Liberty is doing what's right. He would exercise liberty. Those truths would be established in, in, in the government we have today. These concepts of liberty, these concepts of freedom. Freedom comes when we honor God. We have the freedom to honor God. They never wanted anything to get in the way of us having a relationship with the Lord. No government would in, in, infringe on the ability of man and woman to be connected to God because our rights come from God and those would be established. Now when those freedoms would be usurped, we would exercise our liberty. Give me liberty or give me death. I'm going to do what is right in, in, no matter what happens to me. We can always do that. But as, as uh, Benjamin Franklin said, 
we, we, we surrender our liberty and our freedoms for the sake of security, and, and those who do that deserve neither. We're so afraid of engaging in the process and, and, and standing for what is true that we, we yield our freedom and we yield our liberty because we, we want the security. Paul never had security. He never called to see what the next hotel was like in the other city. He just called to see what the prisons were like. This was, this was the entirety of his life. But here's, here's the part I want to point out. He's a murderer. He, he killed. He, he, he widowed wives. He orphaned children. He would even write in Romans, and, and you, you, you can go wherever you want with this. The Lord's spoken to me. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to impose it on you, but God gave me comfort through this passage. Paul wrote in Romans 7, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, and I'm sold under sin. This is verse 14 of Romans 7. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. And what I hate, that I do. Has anyone in the room ever said, I swear to God, I will never do that again? Anyone ever said that? Be honest, raise your hand. Did you do it again? You pathetic, miserable human beings. What is your problem? By the way, I'm with you. Have you ever said, God, I really, really want to serve you with all my heart. God, I, 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 with every fiber in me, this is what I want to do with my life. Anyone ever said that? Amen? Did you do it? Tried. Did you succeed? Be honest. Still working on it. Well, watch what Paul says. That's a great, you, you set it up. You couldn't have teed it off better. If then I do what, it, what I will not to do, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Here, here's, here's the secret. There's no self-help books that are going to succeed. And it seems like Christian bookstores and the internet is filled with self-help books. 12 steps to a better Christian life. In you and in me, we have zero ability to accomplish that. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to, I'm going to lose you know, 25 pounds, and I'm going to learn Spanish, and I'm going to play the guitar, and, I'm going to, and a year passes, and you're 25 pounds larger. You don't play any instruments. Uh, you know, you, you just, you've just been sitting in front of some video game. You, you're just a blob, right? That I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good, good dwells. If I had the ability to will myself, and there's some folks in here, you've got some great self-discipline. I mean, you're... you're you're specimens of discipline. But I got news for you. I just track you for 24 hours. There are some things that you just can't get a handle on. And one of the reasons why you, you know, you're doing what you do is try to avoid people seeing what you are doing that you shouldn't be doing. Okay, good. Bless you, brother. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I, I, I want to do the right thing. All of us in here want to walk the Christian life. For to will is, is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. 
For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. <laughs> I practice it. It's like I have, I have, I, I, I work so hard at sinning that I almost deserve what I've worked for. Have you ever gotten to that where, you, you know, God has put barrier after barrier and you're just getting around it and you're jumping over it and, and you're just plowing through it and you're like, I have, you're exhausted by the time you're getting close to the thing you've wanted in your flesh. And, and God has been warning you all the way along and you're just like, you know, I've gotten this far and I pretty much deserve it. Nobody's ever done that. Come on. Good. Just don't want a room full of Pharisees. He says, uh, verse 20, Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sin's got the rule and authority in your life. How, How do you fix that? And Paul says in verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I want to do God's will. I I have no ability to keep the law, but I know it's good. I know that uh, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat. I know that's good. And I really want to do it. Uh, and, and, And I know it helps humanity. And I know it's important to instill in our children. And I know we're to raise our children in the admonition of the Lord. And when they're young, they won't depart thereof. And I know that we're supposed to instill in them a love for God and, and a fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And, and I know these things are important. And, and so you start to agree. The law is good. I want this. I want this established in my life and in my community. But he says this. Verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, when, when, when your will unites with, with the temptation, it conceives sin. And when sin is fully formed, it produces death. You know, I, I haven't read the word in, in a month. Well, what's happening is... The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. He is the word. You're not spending time in the word. So what's influencing you? And then all of a sudden, you, you no longer have that bearing. It isn't feeding. You have, you have two, two uh, lions in a cage. One is the lion of the flesh and the other is the lion of the spirit. Which one lives? The one you feed the most. If you're not reading the word, your, your flesh is going to take over. And if you're not operating by grace and you're not operating by mercy and, and you're not operating in those contexts and forgetting what's behind. And Paul's saying, look, I get you because you are me. I, I, if, if, if the law could bring salvation, I would have accomplished it a long time ago, but it doesn't. And, and all I know is I've got all the phylacteries and I've got the robe and I've been through the eight years of training. And when I go back into my little cloistered thing, I, my mind is filthy you can be a monk and be on an island in Ireland and still be filthy. It doesn't matter. And, and it wars in your mind. And, and Paul just says, oh, wretched man that I am. Let me tell you what revival is. Revival is coming to a place where you realize you're not good. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. You're not God's gift to humanity. And, and you go, gosh, you're being so, such a downer. Well, there's an upside to this. God lives in you. And he is good. And if you give him the credit and you, you rely on him and you feed the spirit and not the flesh, you become a person people want to be around. 
And you change the world. Or I should say God changes the world through you as an instrument of his righteousness. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and so Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's how you have an abundant Christian life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Feed the Spirit. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in fellowship. Prayer, fellowship, in the Word of God. 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 Did you get that? And if I were to ask you right now, what did you read today? Some of you go, I, 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 my devotion, oh, um, yeah, yeah, I was in uh, John, John 3, 16. You were there last week. Oh, I know, yeah, well, I, I'm meditating on it. People come into the office, they sit down, my, everything's in hell and my marriage and my relationship, and are you reading? Uh, not really, I mean, I, you know, I, well, why don't you try that? Uh, I, I just, the Bible's boring, and you've heard me say this, so are you. But at least the Bible is living and breathing and sharper than two edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And it's the same word that God spoke to heavens into existence. Don't you think you should spend some time in it? Right? It transforms your life. Cling to it. But we just, oh, but life is just so miserable. And I just, I've heard that. You get in line. It, it, everybody's miserable. Here's the solution. Do you want it? Agree with God that everything you've tried, yeah, you've made a mess of it. Welcome to the club. Now, do you want the solution? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Feed the Spirit. Okay, okay, okay. And you're here. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Where was I? And then he says, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And and then he drops down. He goes into, and and I love this, uh, Paul wrote in um, Romans 8, and, and this is something, and, and I got to wrap it up. Some of you struggle. I would, let me correct that. I'd say all of us struggle. Some of us maybe more than others. You're either struggling with what you've done or, what, or with what someone's done to you. And uh, if you're struggling with what someone's done to you, that's a tough place to be because the level you forgive, you will be forgiven. And God doesn't tolerate unforgiveness in the lives of his kids. And some of you go, well, I don't know how I could forgive this person. Let me, let me help you. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. You can't forget what they did. We don't have that ability. Amen? Forgiveness is putting the consequences of that person's actions in the hands of the Lord so you don't have to lay awake at night trying to figure out how to get back at them. Just go to sleep. Put the consequences in the hand of the Lord. Unlock the, 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 the prison that you've placed yourself in and go live your life. Because unforgiveness is that poisonous pill that you're swallowing while you wait for the person you hate to die. And, and, and I have to tell you something. If you're the person that's done evil, And why I'm looking around the room, guess what you're doing? You're looking at me. And guess what we're seeing? Guilty. Amen? How do we live with ourselves? How do we, how do we deal with the fact that we are committing cosmic treason against the God who bled and died on a cross for our sins? That the simplest obedience to his commandments, we just abandon at every 
every turn and every opportunity. The minute someone wrongs us, we just jump on them and just obliterate them when God has forgiven us the multitude of our sins. That we divide a church or we split a relationship or we, 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 just, we, 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 we speak blasphemous words and, and biting commentary and, and we just poison everybody with the, the venom of our tongue. How do, we, how do we get rid of that? What do we do? And, and we, we position ourselves as though we're superior. And, and I, was, I was sharing with a brother the other day that actually it was my, my daughter and, and my son-in-law. And, you know, I, I, the story of David when he's, he's leaving uh, Jerusalem as Absalom's getting ready to take over. And as he's crossing the Jordan, Shimei comes out and starts throwing stones at him. And he's just mocking him and cursing him and telling him what a loser he is and how he's been a miserable king. And, and he's just dumping on him. And uh, Abishai just, he's like, let me just stick it to him, boss. And David says, put your sword away or just calm down. He says, Shimei is being used of the Lord. There are going to be folks that'll, that, that'll come into your life and, and they're going to say things. And you just kind of have to avail yourself and, and ask people that love you. And when I say love you, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And you avail yourself and you say, this is what's been said about me. Tell, talk to me. What, what needs correcting? I, I open myself up for exhortation, please. What is it? Where, where have I wronged? What have I, and, and it is, the shimmy-eye stones hurt. Well, let me tell you how you reverse the shimmy-eye stones and not, be, not see that it's an instrument of God. Build, build yourself in a cloister and, and by superiority, thump everyone around you. Don't, don't let them in and, and have a heavy hand on their lives. That, that's, that's what they call the shepherding movement. It's awful. Uh, there was one thing said about me, and I brought it before the elders, and I, I just said, this is what was said. And it hurt, but talk to me. I just said, have at it, guys. And those are very important times. Are you, are you, a, are you able to be able to yield yourself to that kind of criticism? Because even your enemies speak the truth to an extent. However, we also know that there's an accuser of the brethren, and that's Satan. And it's those brothers that come along at times and go, I, I cannot testify that that's the Lord, and this is why. And live your life in such a way that people can see every aspect of your life and examine you and walk with you. And, and the Apostle Paul gets to this place where he says in Romans 8, he says, this is a murderer, by the way. All right, so I want you to take your, I want you to take what you've done and listen to me. You think it hinders you from serving the Lord. I am persuaded, Romans 8, 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The original context has a period, not a comma. 
Romans 8, 28, for I know that all things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then Paul would write in Ephesians, he'd say, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul wrote that. Paul the murderer wrote that. God picked this man to change the world because he was somebody you could look at and say, if God can save that man, He can save me. If God can use that man, he can use me. Your sin can't take take you where God's grace can't find you. You can't out-sin his grace. There's only one sin that's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that means you just reject the Lord unto death. But if your heart's still beating, his grace is right where you are. He's ready to save you. And the Apostle Paul, the conversion of his life was so dramatic. And you know, when God looks at you and me, he doesn't see the trash, he sees the treasure. He doesn't see you as what you are, he's gonna, he sees you as what you will become. But that has to be at a place where you're yielded. And that's why Paul would write in Philippians, forget what's behind. It's over. It's in the past. Strive for what is ahead. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Get back in the word. And I've read this to you before in Psalm 23. You remind God of your past, and and Psalm 23 says, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. You go, God, I was a murderer, and and you look behind you, and there's there's goodness and mercy, two coachmen sweeping up the mess. What, what, What were you talking about? What were you talking about? Well, I, 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 what? What's that? I'm sorry. There's no evidence of it. It's It's gone. We sweeped it up. And what that does to your heart, it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. You're not good because of what you do. You're good because of what Christ has done. You're saved by grace through faith. That's not of yourselves. That's a gift of God. You are not smarter than the Apostle Paul and you're not more evil than the Apostle Paul. Nothing can equal. So you you don't obtain who you are because you're smart and you don't lose his love because you're evil. His grace is sufficient. And, And that's why God wanted to use this as the greatest example. And I love the fact that he's assembled a room like this. There's two men that as I went through this, I thought, and, and this is what I leave you with. There's two men in the room. One guy I called earlier, he was sick, and the other guy I, I was gonna call as well. And when I think of folks that never in a million years would be converted to Christ, they, they were so evil. They were so evil that God would never, would never reach them. Paul is the most unlikely, if you did a CNN poll, nobody would have voted for him. Nobody. And these two men right now are being so profoundly used in the body of Christ. And I, I, I wanted to come up. David, why don't you come first? This is David Lane. David Lane is, uh, does the American Renewal Projects. Uh, the goal is a thousand pastors around the country running for office. He's an elder in our church. Um, 
He's been in the presence of almost every major political candidate. What's occurring across the country and what God is doing in and through this man is unprecedented. And he'll be the first to tell you he's the last guy in the world that should be in this position. I've spent time with him. And I have seen, when the Lord's not there, what an evil man he can be. (laughs) But I also know, too, because of the Lord in him, he's one of the most, well, you know, I'm going to go further. He's the most generous man I've ever met. David Lane. Pastor, with such a long notice, is this a 30-second, a 5-minute, or a 24-hour testimony I'm giving? All right. Um, A little bit about me was I was born and reared in Oklahoma. My mother and dad divorced when I was six months old. I never knew my dad, really. I saw him about once a year. I called him by his first name until I was about 14 or 15 years old. And, uh, you know, my granddaddy went to the fifth grade. It was rural Oklahoma town, about a thousand people, 1,100 people, and I moved in with my dad and my stepmother when I was in high school, and uh, one of the first things that my dad did was he took me to the strip clubs on Bourbon Street, and that put an engine on me that, uh, so I went through high school, I went, I went to college, I literally was one of the wildest men that ever lived in college, uh, I came out of drugs, wine, women, and song, I deserved judgment, I got mercy. And uh, how it happened was I, I, I put myself through college selling door-to-door in the summertime. I sold Bibles and educational books. You can believe it. I'd sell Bibles all day and stay drunk all night. Four summers I sold. And I moved to Houston, and uh, a guy who had taken a, an interest in me was Zig Ziglar's brother, Judge Ziglar, and he got me to fly into a motivational seminar in Atlanta. I'm in Houston now on drugs, wine, women, and song, sniffing cocaine. And so I flew into a motivational seminar in Atlanta. It turned out it was Bill Gothard. And it was a, the Bill Gothard. And I didn't know I came to Christ. I came to Christ uh, probably the second or third night into it. In fact, the hardest thing I ever had to do, I think, was because I hated my dad and my stepmother. Literally, I hated him. And uh, so I felt like the Lord said when I came to Christ, I want you to call your dad and say, God has convicted me of bitterness towards you, and I ask you to forgive me. So I called my dad, and his response was, I don't have anything to forgive you about. I said, no, God has convicted me, and I ask you to forgive me. My dad didn't know the Lord. And so that was the the beginning of the process where I came to Christ. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a long road out in terms of my dad and, and me. About three years after I came to Christ, I've, you know, and even today, I've read my Bible every day, seven days a week. I hadn't missed a day in 33, 34 years. I still sin. It's awful, but I do. But I'm plugged into the socket. After three years, the Lord of cleaning me up, and uh, the Lord brought Cindy, my wife, in, and uh, she came from a Christian home. Uh, and so, anyway, then the Lord, before we got married, orchestrated my, my way to Washington, D.C. I moved to Washington, D.C. and got into the political business, which I'm really in now. And then the Lord now has begun mobilizing pastors in pews. But the um, the testimony, really, the, a big testimony was, is that, and this is, Cindy will tell you, I mean, you know, uh, Pastor Rob knows this, and probably most of you in here knows this, is that J. Vernon McGee says, if you're God's man or God's woman, you're going to get your B.D. in theology degree as backside of the desert. Moses got his, Job got his, Joseph got his, 
David got his. Pastor Rob got his. I got mine. Cindy and I got ours. We lost everything we had and lived in a hole. The biggest blessing we ever got, really. The mercy of God. The faithfulness of God. So, 30 years of this, uh, the amazing thing is, is that, uh, so here we are now, you know, mobilizing pastors and pews, and the Lord is blessing, like you can't believe. It's been unbelievable, really. And the most amazing thing, Pastor Rob, is that when we were in Atlanta a month ago, or whenever it was, two or three weeks ago, or a month, um, after Pat, uh, a fraternity brother of mine, who was a good buddy of mine, Danny Rollins, was, he came to Atlanta. to the past, He's a pastor now, by the way. He was a Christian in college. I knew he was a Christian. But I didn't have much. To, I didn't have any interest to do anything with him. But I knew, you know, he's a buddy of mine, and uh, so he 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 served, I think, seven or eight years down in Central or South America as a missionary. Now he pastors in Ohio. I've seen Danny probably two or three times in forty years. But he came to the pastors and pews event in Atlanta um, a month ago, and sat through pastors and pews, and then uh, sat through Issachar training. And he said he didn't say it to me, but he said to Cindy later. He said, you know. Uh, that David Lane, the, that the David Lane that I knew in college would be calling for revival in America is nearly unbelievable. So that's where we are. That's, that's, that's what God does. Uh, and, the, and then the trick is, you know, that I, I, have, I won't say I've learned it, because if I hit the ditch, you'll know I did it. Because... You know, it's just what Pastor Rob said. The flesh of the of the believer is just as awful as the flesh of the unbeliever. If you don't walk in the spirit, you will fulfill the lust of the flesh. So you have to stay plugged into the socket. Proverbs uh, chapter 2, 1 through 5 says, the Lord, or through Solomon, the Lord says, if you search for me and you dig and you cry, verse 5, then you will find the knowledge and then the understanding of God. Crying is not enough. You got to dig. Amen. So the um, David, would you share a little bit about your dad and how it reconciled at the end? The uh, he died about was it? I guess it was two years ago, and uh, it was as I mentioned, it was a long road out, thirty years. And my dad uh, left Oklahoma when he was, uh, you know, when my mother and dad divorced, on a bicycle. He, he made it in the, in the automobile business. Uh, he was the car dealer of the year in Louisiana, has the largest Chevrolet dealer, had I don't know how many, 10, 10 dealerships, five or 10 dealerships, and, you know, he, he made it. Uh, Chevrolet Hall of Fame. And uh, my dad was a tough guy. Uh, in fact, until even right before he died, at every morning at 8 o'clock, he's at the dealership, and all the salesmen, you're going to be there, and if you're not there on time, you're going to be fined. That's six days a week. He's working it, baby. And he's this hard-charging type A in your face. He and I were like two alley cats walking around each other, or skunks, whatever we were. But anyway, it was bad. And so, but when I got out of there, I mean, I, I literally hated the guy. And so, but God, you, I remember when Pastor Rob and I became friends, I don't know, 10 years ago, whenever it was, we were visiting with each other and getting to know each other. And Rob said something that really set me free in a, in a sense, which he, Rob said, you know, David, if God hadn't have done it that way, you'd never be the man that you are with the drive that you have and the determination. God did that. And when you embrace that, that nothing touches you except passes through his hands, 
then anyway, so my dad, like two, a, year, a year ago or two years ago, he died. And Cindy and I, we were like the, the, you know, the skunk at the picnic almost. You know, my dad had other kids, and, you know, they're doing well with unlimited money. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out how you pay bills about every day or every month. And so, it, you know, it, it was sort of strange in a sense, you know, with that, that we were somehow the, anyway, it, it wasn't good. So, but through the process is that, um, you know, and I was sort of like a loser, you know. So my dad, now he's on his deathbed. He's got cancer. He's fought cancer for 10 years, but he's not going to make it long. So the first thing that happened was, you know, he called me, or I called him, and I said, uh, Dad, tell me what I can, you know, my little brother who's, I don't know, I'm 60. My little brother's probably 50 now, and he runs all the car dealerships now, inherited it. And uh, I said to my dad on the telephone, what can I do to help you? Because I know that my little brother named Eric and the CPA who had been 50 years with my dad named Ed Joe, who's Chinese, I know that Ed Joe and Eric have the business under control. What can I do to help you? And he said, I don't know, Dave. Let me think about it. So about 10 minutes into this conversation, he says, I know what you can do to help me. That's all right. He said, we got a good name. I said, yeah. He said, I want you to carry on the name. And then I went to see him twice. I walked in. You know, when they, um, I don't see Linda's not here, but the, Linda Johnson, who's an MD, says that the reason, you know, people sort of resurrect for three days after they, uh, before they die. You think, in fact, I remember Cindy's daddy died and her brother went to the doctor because he was on deathbed and then he resurrected for two or three days. And uh, Cindy's brother went to the doctor and said, don't you think, uh, we, shouldn't we reexamine this thing? And he said, you can reexamine it, but he's, he's going to die. And Linda Johnson said the reason they do that is that two or three days before they die, they just get, they know they're going to die. And then all the body quits fighting, dying. And so they have this sort of resurrection. Well, anyway, I went to see my dad. My little brother said, they've given dad a week to live. If you're going to see him, you better come in here. So I went to see my dad, and I walked into the house, and he said, Dave, what are you doing here? And I said, I came check on you. And uh, so... He said to me, he said, Dave, you've done so well. And I said, Dad, this is me. I didn't do that. I mean, hey, oh, I know. But he's, boy, you have done so well. I said, man, this is me. I can't do my multiplication tables, you know. And I said, Dad, God did that. He said, I know. And so I said, I want to tell you a quick story. Your mama, who was Mama Lane, my grandmother, his mother, when I first, I mean, I was a baby in Christ, I, I, she was in, I happened to be in Oklahoma. She's in the deathbed, on her deathbed in the hospital. I go to see her. I probably hadn't seen her in 15 years. I go to see her. She's real burdened because my dad's older brother, who was 13 years old, had been there. He was Church of Christ. He had told her that their dad, who was blind, but their dad didn't go to heaven because he wasn't baptized. And she, she, here she was real, just she and I in the room, and she was real burdened. So I'm telling my dad this story, and I said, you know, I went to see Mama Lane before she died. She's real burdened. And uh, Uncle Bud had said, that Daddy Lane, their daddy and my granddaddy, didn't go to heaven. And I said, well, Mom Lane, all I know is this. The book says, if the last thing that he said when he, leave, when he left this earth is, Jesus, help me. He's going to spend eternity with God. That's what the book says. My dad said, she must have been real relieved. I said, she was. And the reason I'm telling Jerry Lane that story, that's my dad, is the last thing that Jerry Lane does when he leaves this earth is Jesus help me. 
You're going to spend eternity with God. That's what the book says. Before he died, three or four days later, my little brother, I don't know if he called me or he text messaged me, but I don't know, midnight, 2 in the morning, he text messaged me and said, Dave, Dad just said, Jesus, help me. The power of Christ. We got uh, about six minutes. I told him five, so we can, I'm giving him an extra minute. But um, Joe is uh, another one of those folks is the last person you ever imagine coming to the Lord. And uh, you've already shared a little bit. But yeah. Bring yeah. it on. Share with everybody. Joe Salant. What's up, family? How y'all doing? You know, uh, the, uh, that horrible murder... That horrible murder outside the uh, the Taco Bell in Camarillo. Um, the uh, the na- the name of the kid that died, Daniel Morales, by all accounts was an unbelievable kid. Just just uh, I was reading a little bit about him. Got the news from Pastor Rob. I was at work, kind of stunned me. This is not Compton. This is Camarillo. People getting stabbed outside of the Taco Bell. It's ridiculous. Um, wow. I mean, our society is just going down. And all accounts, wonderful kid. And um, you know, I identify more uh, with, with the kid that that, that, uh, that murdered him than, than Daniel Morales. Um, his name is James Tyler Ostertag. I, I saw a picture of this guy. Uh, 20 years old, they found him in a hotel room in Riverside. Uh, the evil that you could see on his face. It was If, if you take a look at the picture, I, I encourage you. Take a, this, this kid just has his, his butt whipped by evil. Just 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 destroyed by evil. I looked at that kid and I said, That's me. I said, That's me. James Tyler Ostertag. Probably spend, I don't know, twenty years or so in, in prison. Um the evil that was on his face was the same evil that I saw when I was on drugs running crystal methamphetamine products to meth cooks in the same town that this guy got caught in. You tell me God doesn't speak to you through, through if, you, if you listen, if you listen to what's going on in the world, you will see God speaking to you through these kind of events. James, this guy, James Tyler Ostertag, he had that same kind of evil, that same evil that was, that was just, it, it had gripped me. Um, I come from a, a, a non-Christian household, a secular household. Uh, a household that had the view that man is the center philosophically, that the furthest thing back basically is the human consciousness, that before that things don't really matter and that man can assign his own worth in the world. My parents are wonderful people. Uh, They raised me with a lot of love, but that's the worldview that they gave me. It's a worldview of secular humanism. It is the official religion of the United States of America today. It is the reason why we have James Tyler Ostertags running around acting like monkeys because the schools teach us that we're nothing but an advanced primate that is nothing but uh, the result of a time chance accident 4.5 billion years ago. That was what was instilled in me as a child. I remember walking into a church when I was 17 years old, 18 years old. Um, uh, just, I was only there because I was following a girl. And the, the feeling that I had of disdain for the Christians, the, the, the believers that were taking down the progress of society with their asinine belief in this 
transcendent God that was watching them and that was all good and that was all lovely and that was all kind and that was causing them to act in this fake way and, and restrict the rights and freedoms that we should all have to express ourselves. Um, this disdain that I had when I walked into the church, that was the kind of individual that I was. When I got kicked off the football team for having a quarter pound of marijuana in my backpack, um, my next mission was to take every kid that I could in the high school that I was with and get them into my lifestyle. That was the kind of kid I was. I, I, I grew up in a nice home in Princeton, New Jersey. I, I spent a lot of my time in Harlem, New York, purchasing drugs to take on, uh, uh, on the turnpike back to Princeton, New Jersey to serve to the kids that were in my high school. Okay? Late nights out there uh, uh, running the streets uh, of the Upper West Side in New York City. That is the kind of person that I was. Pure evil. Pure evil. Yet that question still remained in my heart. I only have one minute. That question still remained in my heart. Who, who, who am I? What, what is, why do I desire to do these things? Why, at the, why in the depths of my being do I know that they are wrong? Not not just wrong for the moment, but wrong eternally in a way that, that if everyone in the, on the planet knew that they were right or thought that they were right, they'd still be wrong. I knew what I was doing was wrong. It didn't match with my worldview. When I got in enough trouble from prescription uh, uh, forgery charges in New Jersey, uh, my parents paid a lot of money for me to go out to a uh, young adult program not far from Riverside where James Tyler Ostertag was picked up in the, uh, in the hotel room. Um, and uh, it, it was there that I had linked up with some methamphetamine cooks in, in, in California, left the home real quick, started running products to them. Um, that drug, by the way, I could see it all over his face. It is a wicked, evil, evil drug, crystal methamphetamine. I saw the face of evil. I saw the evil that was on James Tyler Ostertag's face when he stabbed that poor kid outside of the Taco Bell. I saw the face of evil running those methamphetamine products to the crystal meth cooks in Riverside County. And I knew for a fact that if this kind of evil exists, then God must exist as well. You cannot have that kind of evil exist without there being a God, an ultimate source of good. It would make no sense whatsoever. So my Damascus Road experience, I, I, I saw that and I knew it was true. It was a couple months later. I was actually in the back of a police car and I'd been up for probably about seven days and I had been feeling this, 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 this presence of evil just, just, encasing my whole body in this in this kind of metaphysical torture and suffering i wanted to just rip my bones out of my skin and and it was at that point in time that i said that's it god if you if you exist i know you exist please do something please do something and this peace descended over my body and through my body and i was like like saul said lord who are you and the name of Jesus, with no one witnessing to me, came into my mind. The name of Jesus came into my mind. I knew he was real. He was real as, as, as this, but he was, as, he was realer than I was. He was, he is ultimate reality. And so the rest of my Christian testimony has, has been geared towards proving 
intellectually that that wasn't a subjective experience. Because that story isn't going to reach. If I told that story to the 17, 18-year-old Joe, Joe Salant, who was very similar to this James Tyler Ostertag guy, if, if I told that story to him, that, that might not move him. He would need to hear persuasive facts to go along with the story. And so the rest of my testimony has been dedicated towards going to war against secular humanism. Intellectually, it is the demon that grips this country right now. It is the, it is the ideology. Ideas have consequences. It is the idea that must be taken down. And so by the grace of God, um, you know, 2004 I got saved. It's 2015. I'm still in the middle of my testimony right now. Uh, over the past year, huge things have happened. Um, my man John Mink in the back uh, has, you know, embraced me in, in in such crazy ways. He's taken my music to the next level, plugged me in greatly with this church. I uh, came over here for with Pastor Rob McCoy. I mean, this is a culture warrior right here. I came over here kind of as a groupie, like, hey, can I take a look at Rob McCoy? He's over here with Rand Paul. You know, the hand of David Lane behind the scenes. Uh, you know, these. Uh, it's it's just incredible what God does with somebody that's just like James. Tyler Ostertag. Thank you very much. Wait, I wait, appreciate wait, Joe. it. Um, uh, how long have you been married? Oh, um, I've been married for six years now. No, seven years. I'm going to get hurt. Is that on tape? <laughs> how many kids you got? I got two kids. Uh, how educated are you? <clears throat> how educated are you? Oh, I have a, a master's in, in theology. You have a master's? Yeah. yeah. I think you'd have a master's in tattoos, but you have a master's in theology. You know, he's right. I don't like my tattoos, by the way. So, <laughs> but, but my point is, you, you would have never expected that. And you look at a guy like he's describing, or the one that, that stabbed Daniel, this, this James young man. We don't know what's going to happen to him, but ultimately, every life counts. And whatever you've done, God's grace will meet you right where you are. And it's his kindness that will lead you to repentance. And God's ready to turn the Sauls into Pauls in the room. And these are examples of how that happens. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this evening. I thank you for David. I thank you for Joe. I thank you, for, more importantly, for your word, for the life of Paul, and God, for the lives of all the men and women in this room. Let them not be discouraged. Let them be encouraged. Bless them, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.